It's Wednesday, July 14th, and you've got Oz in your ears. This is Dave. And this is Pete, and we're on the road for Radio Free Oz on Bob, the 57-foot yacht with its captain, BP CEO, Horny Wayward, uh, Tony Hayward at the helm. Uh, welcome aboard, boys. And with him is Mississippi Governor Haley Barber. What a beautiful day for sailing. The sea like moose. Uh, where are you uh, headed there uh, now, Tony? Well, I'm sailing around the world to offer my glad hand to all these sheiks and sheiks and Russians and Greeks who've partnered with BP. <laughs> oh! Ah, Watch it, it's those damn birds again. Albatrosses keep falling out of the oil rain and landing around my neck. <laughs> well, I'm so glad to sail out of here away from all the, the dead birds and the crowds of people suffering from unemployment. It's a, it's a disease, isn't it? More like an epidemic. Uh, we don't seem to be making much headway, Tony. Well, I could usually get through the gulf in a day, but not in these heavy seas. Oh, that six-foot-thick oil scum is... It's bloody hard to cut through. That's no scum, Tony. What? What reminds me of the slick sheen from a criss-craft rafting by pulling a good-looking girl and a well-built guy. Hmm. I don't think the scum is your biggest problem, Tony. I think mm, that is... Oh. Mother of pearl! It's the whitening whale! The biggest super skimmer in the world! Look at those booms! Oh. They must be a thousand feet long and stuffed with salon poodle hair and gaga wig! Oh, it's heading right at us and it's pushing a vast slew of dispersion! It's going to sop us up! Why did you just let Pete and me off right here at Gas War Island, okay? Uh, well, thanks, fellas. Good luck with the whitening whale. No worries, lads. I've never met an oil disaster as slick as me. This is Peter Bergman and David Osmond, completely at sea for Radio Free Oz, hoping that all's well with this oil well. Uh, where do we go to get a drink, I Pete? No, where's the helicopter? Oh, Radio Free Oz on RadioFreeOz.com on Bastille Day. So open the doors of Radio Prison and listen to RFO. I am your host, Peter Bergman, our co-host, David Osmond. I am so happy to be here on the, on the, on the Bastille Day battlements uh, proclaiming liberté, égalité, fraternité, more vin. More, more vin, that's it. Plus vin, plus, plus, vin. plus, de, vin, plus de vin. We could do the whole show with these terrible accents oh, and probably be. lose a lot of regular listeners. <laughs> Bastille Day, it, you know, that's a big day in France and it's revolutionary. I don't think they blow off fireworks in France, though. Mm, I don't know. Well, everything's against the law. You know, you can't rent an apartment in Paris anymore. You've got to rent it for a year. Otherwise, you know, they'll take it away from you. Oh, mon. de pied à terre? I'm afraid she is gone, the Piedatel. No more, no more. Well, they also have the Sony Lumiere apartments, which they aren't really apartments. They're just projections of apartments with the various sounds of apartment life going on. It's, you can rent those by the day. Those you can rent by the day or by the night, actually, is when you... It's, they're more Day and night in night. Paris, to me, it is the same <laughs> existential angst. Uh, where am I? Where have I been? Where am I going? Uh-oh, I'm back in that accent. Uh-oh, uh-oh. I got a feeling Yves Sastoul is going to show up sometime soon. Yeah, he'll be on later on. You know? All right. You know where Eve's at? Eve's at? Where is he at? He's in Tehran. Oh, my gosh. Well, that's good. That's good. There's fashion everywhere. Well, you know, I uh, just want to mention that this is a special day because I'm going to start reading the, the first of the two 
uh, uh, Ambassador Eikenberry cables, the secret cables to Hillary Clinton from last November, which the New York Times unearthed. And they are the Pentagon Papers of the Afghan war, or as I like to say, the Afghan occupation. Well, Eikenberry, the general. Uh, yeah, former Lieutenant General yeah. Eikenberry, who his bio is incredible. He is a soldier, scholar, and diplomat. What a guy. We'll, we'll be hearing from him, so to speak, very soon. And probably some silly stuff, too. Oh, yeah. Count on it. Over the next two days, I'm going to be reading in their entirety the two secret cables sent by our ambassador in Afghanistan, Carl W. Eikenberry, to his boss, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. They were uh, somehow uh, came into the presence of the New York Times and were published. Um, they're quite remarkable. There's two of them, one talking about counterinsurgency and the next... Uh, after counterinsurgency. The first was sent on November 6, 2009, the second on November 9, 2009, and he's giving his opinion on whether or not Barack Obama should send an additional 20 or 30,000 troops to Afghanistan. Uh, Daniel Ellsberg said these are the Pentagon Papers of the Afghanistan War. But first, let's take a look at Eikenberry himself. Let's look at his creds, his provenance, and then you can decide for yourself just how serious and, you know, credible this man is. Prior to his assignment, he was sworn in as U.S. Ambassador to Afghanistan in April of 2009. Mr. Eikenberry served as the Deputy Chairman of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization Military Committee in Brussels. He retired from the U.S. military with the rank of Lieutenant General in April of 2009. His military operational posts included service as Commander and Staff Officer with Mechanized, Light, Airborne, and Ranger Infantry Units in the continental United States, Hawaii, Korea, and Italy. He has served in various strategy, policy, and political military positions, including Director for Strategic Planning and Policy for U.S. Pacific Command, U.S. Security Coordinator and Chief of the Office of Military Cooperation in Kabul, Afghanistan, Assistant Army and later Defense Attaché at the United States Embassy in Beijing, China, Senior Country Director for China, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Mongolia in the Office of the Secretary of Defense and Deputy Director for Strategy Plans and Policy on the Army Staff. He's a graduate of the U.S. Military Academy, has master's degrees from Harvard University in East Asian Studies and Stanford University in Political Science, and was a National Security Fellow at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. He earned an interpreter certificate in Mandarin Chinese from the British Foreign Commonwealth Office while studying at the United Kingdom Ministry of Defense Chinese Language School in Hong Kong, and he has an advanced degree in Chinese history from Nanjing University in the People's Republic of China. He's published numerous articles on U.S. military training tactics and strategy, on Chinese ancient military history, and on Asia-Pacific security issues. He was previously the president of the Foreign Area Officers Association and is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and the International Institute for Strategic Studies. He is married to Ching Eikenberry. This man is the real thing. Fly the Goddess, multi-sex plugs for your laptops, international mini-meals, unlimited plague-free air, no bloody babies, and extra knee room for your extra knee. Isn't that where you want to be at midnight when the big eyeball drops on those sub-millionaires 30,000 feet beneath you? Goddess Air, she'll get you there. Ambassador Carl Eikenberry to Hillary Clinton. Secretary of State, Cable One, Secret, 6 November 2009. Subject, Coin Strategy. 
COIN is the acronym for counterinsurgency. And this is about civilian concerns. Madam Secretary, as we near the end of our deliberations on the way forward in Afghanistan, I would like to outline my reservations about a counterinsurgency strategy that relies on a large infusion of U.S. forces. I fully agree that the security situation in Afghanistan is serious and that additional troops will help reverse the worsening trends in areas where the troops are deployed. There is an unassailable logic to the argument that a robust counterinsurgency approach will yield measurable progress, at least in the security realm. But I am concerned that we underestimate the risks of this expansion of our mission and that we have not fully studied every alternative. The proposed troop increase will bring vastly increased costs and an indefinite large-scale U.S. military role in Afghanistan, generating the need for yet more civilians. An increased U.S. and foreign role in security and governance will increase Afghan dependency, at least in the near term, and it will deepen the military involvement in a mission that most agree cannot be won solely by military means. Further, it will run counter to our strategic purposes of Afghanizing and civilianizing government functions here. Perhaps the charts we have all seen showing the U.S. presence rising and then dropping off in coming years in a bell curve will prove accurate. It is more likely, however, that these forecasts are imprecise and optimistic. In that case, sending additional forces will delay the day when Afghans will take over and make it difficult, if not impossible, to bring our people home on a reasonable timetable. Moreover, none of these charts display dollar costs. Acknowledgement of the astronomical costs might illustrate the greater desirability of civilian alternatives now dismissed as too costly or not feasible. Here are my reasons for this assessment. 1. President Karzai is not an adequate strategic partner. The proposed counterinsurgency strategy assumes an Afghan political leadership that is both able to take responsibility and to exert sovereignty in the furtherance of our goal, a secure, peaceful, minimally self-sufficient Afghanistan hardened against transnational groups. Yet Karzai continues to shun responsibility for any sovereign burden, whether defense, governance, or development. He and much of his circle do not want the U.S. to leave and are only too happy to see us invest further. They assume we covet their territory for a never-ending war on terror and for military bases to use against surrounding powers. With his re-election, Karzai will remain Afghanistan's dominant political actor. We hope we can move him toward taking firm control of his country and guiding its future, but sending more combat forces will only strengthen his misconceptions about why we are here. Before any troop announcement, we should first have a high-level dialogue with Karzai and his new government to explain our goals and obtain agreement on what we expect from them. Even with such an understanding, it strains credulity to expect Karzai to change fundamentally this late in his life and in our relationship. Beyond Karzai himself, there is no political ruling class that provides an overarching national identity that transcends local affiliations and provides reliable partnership. Even if we could eradicate pervasive corruption, the country has few indigenous sources of revenue, few means to distribute services to its citizens, and most important, little to no political will or capacity to carry out basic tasks of governance. As a practical matter, this means that expanding assistance, either military or civilian, will increase Afghan dependence and make more remote the day when we can transfer most sovereign responsibilities to the Afghans and draw down our own presence. Two, 
We overestimate the ability of Afghan security forces to take over. Success of the proposed counterinsurgency strategy hinges upon Afghan forces steadily assuming responsibility for security and fully taking over this duty by 2013. Yet achieving that goal will require President Karzai to embrace his role as commander-in-chief, a step he resists, and for him to commit his government to recruiting and training. I have serious doubts about the Afghan government's ability to meet the ambitious targets and timeliness necessary to meet our requirements. The Army's high attrition and low recruitment rates for Pashtuns in the South are crippling. Simply keeping the force at current levels requires tens of thousands of new recruits every year to replace attrition losses and battlefield casualties. Those requirements would steepen dramatically under the proposed strategy. Building an effective Afghan national police, which is in many ways more crucial to extend the Afghan government's reach into villages and districts, will prove even tougher. The police receive lower benefits and face higher risks in many places than the army. Given the exorbitant political and fiscal costs of large-scale U.S. deployments, we should consider increasing the financial incentives for joining the ANA and the ANP. If our assumption is that more forces are essential to stabilize Afghanistan, then we should investigate the benefits to security of making service in the Afghan security forces more attractive rather than relying more heavily on foreign troops. There is also the deeper concern about dependency. The proposed counterinsurgency strategy calls for partnering in the field to quickly improve the Afghan security forces. I do not question the ability of U.S. forces to effectively take on this mentoring mission, one that they have performed ably in Iraq. However, I am concerned that it is U.S. and other NATO ISAF forces, well, ISAF, International Security Assistance Force, that's 46 nations with troops on the ground that vary from Luxembourg's 9 to America's 62,415. These troops will continue to do most of the fighting and take most of the casualties. Rather than reducing Afghan dependence, sending more troops, therefore, is likely to deepen it, at least in the short term. That would delay our goal of shifting the combat burden to the Afghans. You know, Dave, Harry Reid is a tough old bird. He's the wrangling that Democratic Senate, you know, he had to go through the whole Bush thing. And now he's being um, challenged by this crazy woman, Sharon Angle, right? Yep. who came in through the Tea Party. She came in through the Tea Party. I don't know. I'm not going to sing it. Harry Reid isn't letting threats of a lawsuit stop him. He's sticking with his web campaign against the real Sharon Angle. After the Angle campaign sent the Reed camp a cease and desist letter last week demanding that they take down their reposting of Angle's old campaign website, the Reed camp has now made just a few modifications and put it right back up. They are broadcasting her website? Yes, oh, her boy. old website, her the old website one, yeah. that she doesn't want to live with. They've, right? they've scrubbed up the... Well, the she network. took it down, right, and they replaced it with a relaunch, a somewhat toned-down version, but mm-hmm. the Reed campaign saved the old version and put up the website called The Real Sharon Angle, ah. reproducing the old content. So, yeah, where they get rid of this is social security. Yeah, the, and, the original mm-hmm. website, including Angle in her own words... On the on and with her own dangerous and extreme agenda has been relaunched at the real SharonAngle.com. Mm-hmm. Reed said it's a matter of, of called free speech, which they say is nearly absolute under the First Amendment, and say they say Sharon, we know those 
big constitutional issues are tough for you, like when you said separation of church and state was unconstitutional exactly one week ago. Oh, Sharon, oh no. Now here comes John Summers, who's his campaign manager or spokesman, I should say. He's got to be tough if he's speaking for Harry. The question is, said John Summers, the spokesman for Reed, what will Sharon Angle do now to hide her extreme views on killing Social Security and eliminating the Department of Education and Nevada voters? Perhaps she's checking to see if there are any Second Amendment remedies. Ooh, Second Amendment remedies. Bang, bang. Uh, Sharon, don't go there. This is part two of the first cable that our ambassador, Carl Eikenberry, sent to his boss, Hillary Clinton, the Secretary of State, on the 6th of November, 2009, the subject being counterinsurgency strategy. Number three, he says, talking about his concerns, we underestimate how long it will take to restore or establish civilian government. The proposed strategy assumes that once the clearing and holding process has been accomplished in a given area, the rebuilding and transferring to Afghans can proceed apace, followed by a relatively rapid U.S. withdrawal. In reality, the process of restoring Afghan government is likely to be slow and uneven, no matter how many U.S. and other foreign civilian experts are involved. Many areas need not just security, but health care, education, justice, infrastructure, and almost every other basic government function. Many have never had these services at all. Establishing them requires trained and honest Afghan officials to replace our own personnel. That cadre of Afghan civilians does not now exist and would take years to build. At the moment, it is mostly U.S. civilians and those of our allies who follow behind our forces into cleared areas to establish formal governance. We are not trying to build on a Western model, but as we assume this responsibility in an ever-widening area, it becomes harder to leave until the Afghans can provide basic services themselves. We have little clarity about how long it will be until clear districts are connected to an Afghan government that both functions in Kabul and reaches down to the local level. The proposed strategy does not remedy an inadequate civilian structure. There is no civilian organizational counterpart to ISAF and no political leadership equivalent to the NATO ISAF commander. A deficiency that hampers civilian effectiveness and heavily skews the NATO ISAF dialogue with the Afghan government. UNAMA, that's the uh, United Nations organization, is not capable of coordinating all the civilian efforts because its role is not to serve as a civilian policy and program counterpart to NATO ISAF. Its capabilities and will are likely to diminish further with the recent post-attack withdrawal of UN personnel. Progress on governance, anti-corruption, rule of law, and reconstruction will ultimately determine our success, but our coalition efforts will remain less than optimal unless a stronger civilian structure is created. No one questions the military's need for coherent command and control, yet the same attention has not been paid to the civilian configuration, even though we are engaged in a long-term operation in which one of the central premises is a fully integrated civilian military effort. There is no debate that the U.S. is in the military lead. We need to reach the same understanding with our allies and partners on the civilian side, especially if more troops are sent. 
NATO should designate the U.S. as the lead nation for those civilian tasks delineated in its operational plan. Arguments that this will increase the U.S. role are beside the point. Right now, the U.S. leads the civilian dialogue by default, but the ambiguity in the Afghan government's eyes over the status of the U.S. versus the ISAF commander opens a seam that Karzai is likely to exploit. Unless we create a civilian authority comparative to the military chain of command, this problem will deepen and we are likely to see further militarization of our effort instead of civilianization and Afghanization, which are our real aims. The proposed strategy may not be cost-effective. Sending additional combat brigades will require tens of billions of dollars annually for years to come, cost not detailed in the Department of Defense charts. Yet an embassy request this summer for a $2.5 billion increase in our budget for development and governance was analyzed and debated in great detail, only to be rejected. If more troops are to be sent to Afghanistan, we should revisit decisions about our development funding. In particular, we should weigh whether a relatively small additional investment in programs for development and governance would yield results that, if not as visible as those from sending more troops, would move us closer to achieving our goals at a far lesser cost and risk both in lives and dollars. Accelerating our work on signature projects to deliver greater access to electricity, water, and education could have a high payoff in stability over the long term. With a greatly stepped-up development effort, we could be in a position at some point to call off further troop deployments as Afghans begin to see their lives improving and their needs addressed. I used to watch Keith Olbermann on MSNBC all the time before the election. In fact, I did nothing but watch television, you know, the run-up to the election, because I saw it was the difference between the end of the world and the beginning, perhaps, of something new. All right? It did have that feel. Yes, it did. And I never forget the time that Keith Olbermann took President Bush to task. He looked into that camera and basically called him a fascist. Just just and he was straightforward. It wasn't attitude. He was angry, but it was without attitude. And I went, "You go, Keith." <laughs> anyway, he has named Rush Limbaugh his worst person in the world Tuesday night for Limbaugh's comments that Oprah and President Obama only succeeded because of their race. Quote: uh, These quotes speak for themselves and for a diseased and failing mind, Olbermann said, introducing Limbaugh's comments. Because earlier on in the day, Limbaugh had said, um, uh, Obama wouldn't have been voted president if he weren't black. Somebody asked me over the weekend, why does somebody earn a lot of money, have a lot of money because she's black? It was Oprah. No, it can't be. Yes, it is. There's a lot of guilt out there. Sure, we're, we're show them we're not racist. We'll make this person wealthy and big and famous and so forth. If Obama weren't black, he'd be a tour guide in Honolulu, or he'd be teaching Saul Alinsky constitutional law or lecturing on it in Chicago. That, that this you know too much oxycotton. <laughs> yes, man. I think. Now he's got to send. He's got to send his mate out to pimp better drugs for him. This guy is going. He's, he's <laughs> his going. mind is gone. Yeah. Uh, um, so it, Keith got him. All it's, right. It's naked, ugly racism. It is the distillation of Rush Limbaugh's ugly view of our country. Olbermann said, and he ended with a plea to the Queen of Daytime Talk, Oprah, please crush this schmuck. <laughs> oh, I like that. Please crush this. Uh, He speaks for all of us. This is the third part of Ambassador Carl Eikenberry's secret cable of November 6, 2009, written to his boss, Hillary Clinton, the Secretary of State, 
on the uh, issue of counterinsurgency strategy, civilian concerns. More troops won't end the insurgency as long as Pakistan's sanctuaries remain. Pakistan will remain the single greatest source of Afghan instability so long as the border sanctuaries remain and Pakistan views its strategic interest as best served by a weak neighbor. There is reason to be encouraged by Pakistan's current military offensive in Waziristan, but the lasting result of this effort is still unclear. Nor does the Pakistan military action address the role of the Keita Shura, which has the most influence over the insurgency in southern Taliban strongholds, or the Haqqani network, the most lethal killer of allied troops and Afghan civilians. Until the sanctuary problem is fully addressed, the gains from sending additional forces may be fleeting. We are always looking for game changers. If we are looking for a strategic partner and military political moves likely to have decisive results, those must be in Pakistan. As we contemplate greatly expanding our presence in Afghanistan, the better answer to our difficulties could well be to further ratchet up our engagement with Pakistan. This memorandum summarizes my concerns about the counterinsurgency strategy now under consideration and my thoughts about other steps to achieve our goals. After our discussion at the Principals Committee this evening, I will follow up with a cable that will include specific recommendations. For now, I cannot support DOD's recommendation for an immediate presidential decision to deploy another 40,000 troops here. Madam Secretary, I would ask you to pass this assessment to the White House, if you deem it appropriate, in advance of the Principals Committee. Respectfully, Eikenberry. Johnny went to war at the tender age of 17 Went to fight the devil 9,000 miles away In a land that Johnny never even heard of We got him fighting devils And every day We send another on his way Think his mama prays for her baby Every day another demon makes his way Every day there's another devil
think his mama prays for her baby every day. Another demon makes his way every day. It's another devil. I love Paul Krugman. He's a Nobel uh, economist. He's clear thinking. He's compassionate. He's my man. And I have once before, and I am again going to read an um, op-ed piece of his from the New York Times in its entirety because it really sums it all up. It's called Punishing the Jobless. There was a time when everyone took it for granted that unemployment insurance, which normally terminates after 26 weeks, would be extended in times of persistent joblessness. It was, most people agreed, the decent thing to do. But that was then. Today, American workers face the worst job market since the Great Depression, with five job seekers for every job opening, with the average spell of unemployment now at 35 weeks. Yet the Senate went home for the holiday weekend without extending benefits. How was that possible? Well, Paul, I know it's hard to plumb the depths of the NOP. It's a dark, dangerous place to go. Okay, the answer according to Paul, is that we're facing a coalition of the heartless, the clueless, and the confused. Nothing can be done about the first group, and probably not much about the second, but maybe it's possible to clear up some of the confusion. By the heartless, I mean Republicans who have made the cynical calculation that blocking anything President Obama tries to do, including or perhaps especially anything that might alleviate the nation's economic pain, improves their chances in the midterm elections. Don't pretend to be shocked. You know they're out there and make up a large share of the GOP caucus. By the clueless, I mean people like Sharon Angle, the Republican candidate for senator from Nevada, who has repeatedly insisted that the unemployed are deliberately choosing to stay jobless so that they can keep collecting benefits. Here's a sample remark. You can make more money on unemployment than you can going down and getting one of those jobs that is an honest job, but it doesn't pay as much. We've put in so much entitlement into our government that we really have spoiled our citizenry. Now, I don't have the impression that unemployed Americans are spoiled. Uh, desperate seems more like it. One doubts, however, that any amount of evidence could change Ms. Angle's view of the world, and there are, unfortunately, a lot of people in our political class just like her. But there are also, one hopes, at least a few political players who are honestly misinformed about what unemployment benefits do, who believe, for example, that Senator John Krill, Republican of Arizona, was making sense when he declared that extending benefits would make unemployment worse because, quote, continuing to pay people unemployment compensation is a disincentive for them to seek new work. So let's talk about why that belief is dead wrong. 
Do unemployment benefits reduce the incentive to seek work? Yes. Workers seeking unemployment benefits aren't quite as desperate as workers without benefits and are likely to be slightly more choosy about accepting new jobs. The operative word here is slightly. Recent economic research suggests that the effect of unemployment benefits on worker behavior is much weaker than was previously believed. Still, it's a real effect when the economy is doing well. But it's an effect that is completely irrelevant to our current situation. When the economy is booming and lack of sufficient willing workers is limiting growth, generous unemployment benefits may keep employment lower than it would have been otherwise. But as you may have noticed, right now the economy isn't booming. Again, there are five unemployed workers for every job opening. Cutting off benefits to the unemployed will make them even more desperate for work. But they can't take jobs that aren't there. Well, there's more. One main reason there aren't enough jobs right now is weak consumer demand. Helping the unemployed by putting money in the pockets of people who badly need it helps support consumer spending. That's why the Congressional Budget Office rates aid to the unemployed as a highly cost-effective form of economic stimulus. And unlike, say, large infrastructure projects, aid to the unemployed creates jobs quickly, while allowing that aid to lapse, which is what is happening right now, is a recipe for for even weaker job growth, not in the distant future, but over the next few months. But won't extending unemployment benefits worsen the budget deficit? Yes, slightly. But as I and others have have been arguing at length, penny-pinching in the midst of a severely depressed economy is no way to deal with our long-run budget problems, and penny-pinching at the expense of the unemployed is cruel as well as misguided. So, is there any chance that these arguments will get through? Not, I fear, to Republicans. It is difficult to get a man to understand something, said Upton Sinclair, when his salary, or in this case, his hope of retaking Congress, depends upon his not understanding it. But there are also centrist Democrats who have been brought into the arguments against helping the unemployed. It's up to them to step back, realize that they have been misled, and do the right thing by passing extended benefits. Well, you know, with the World Cup and all of that, um, there's some great sports photographs in the Times. I mean, these still pictures of guys tumbling over themselves, all eight feet off the ground, you know, as they have punched a goal through it. They're just amazing photos. And uh, that's why I've been looking at the sports page of the Times. But I, I, I found this item. Do you realize that, that the New York Times covers competitive eating? Yes, they do. Eating champion arrested for crashing stage. Joey Chestnut won his fourth straight Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest Sunday, but he was upstaged by the surprise appearance of the six-time champion, Takeru Kobayashi of Japan, who did not compete but crashed the stage after Chestnut's win and wrestled with police. <laughs> Let him eat, the crowd chanted as police handcuffed Kobayashi. He did not eat this year because he refused to sign a contract with Major League Eating. This is David Osman on the road for Radio Free Oz. And, well, today I'm here in Tehran, Iran, with international fashion tastemaker Yves Sansstuhl. David. <laughs> Bonjour, Yves. Oh, superb to be here, David. It's summertime, and once again, the Iranian fashions are in the news. Oh, that's, uh, that's right, Yves. And leading the official runway parade here at today's Vale and Chastity Festival is the Clean Street Squad from the Ministry of Culture. Here they come. Yes. 
say they're morality police and they are dressed uh, to chase after people who are not chased enough. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yes. Completely stylish blue suit they all see with the shoulder padding a la men's warehouse, uh-huh, the yes. short sleeve Walmart of China shirt, and of course, no ties. Well, ties, I understand, are banned here as un Iranian. <laughs> <laughs> David, it's 115 degrees in the soup, but, but uh, here march the barber's battalion, hundreds oh, yeah. of haircutters, all carrying posters displaying the new official styles for men. Yes, Eve, the ministry wants to halt the spread of unconventional styles, well, mullets and, and mohawks, I guess. Well, they certainly have done that here today. Yeah. To me, all these hairstyles look exactly more the same. But, but Eve, now tell me, do you think that these cuts confront, as they say here, the decadent Western cultural invasion? The good news is none of these haircuts resemble the worldwide tonsorial terror of 1975. Oh, I remember the that. The bad news is, to me, they are all identical to the head of Wayne Newton with just a quiff of jazz. Well, well, okay, well, finally, here come the traditional twin paddy wagons for cultural prisoners. I, I see a man inside that one. He's got a, he's got a ponytail. He will have to go to the uh-huh. and the other one, a loosely veiled woman with an un- a shade of pink lipstick. Mm, I'm afraid it's up for a scrubbing. <laughs> well, both of them are really lucky, though. In another country, they might have been stoned to death <laughs> right here on the spot. That's very strange. Oh, yes. Well, this is David Osman on the road for Radio Free Oz. Uh, uh, by the way, what do you call your coiffure, Eve? Just skin, David. It is enough for me. The Grey Lady gives us some good news. The alphabet soup of college admissions is getting more complicated as the International Baccalaureate, or IB, grows in popularity as an alternative to the better-known Advanced Placement Program. The IB, a two-year curriculum developed in the 1960s at an international school in Switzerland, first took hold in the U.S. in private schools, but it's now offered in more than 700 American high schools, more than 90% of them public schools, and almost 200 more have begun the long certification process. This is an exciting program, by the way. To earn an IB diploma, students must devote their full junior and senior years to the program, which requires English and another language, oh my my, math, science, social science, and art, plus a course on the theory of knowledge, a 4,000-word essay, oral presentations, and community service. This is is a full-on good idea, and we would do well to give it federal support. Maybe close a few offshore oil drilling loopholes to offset the expense. Hmm? The IB program is used in 139 countries, and its international focus has drawn criticism from some quarters. Why am I not surprised? Here they come. Some parents say it's, get ready, anti-American and too closely tied to both the United Nations and radical environmentalism. From its start in 1968 until 1976, the program was financed primarily by UNESCO. Horrors! The United Nations! It is now associated with the United Nations Economic and Social Council, and until recently, it endorsed the Earth Charter, a declaration of principles of sustainability that originated in the United Nations. Well, that's that's just plain un-American! Quote, when there is a program at the school with a specific agenda, which in this case is the United Nations agenda, whatever that is, I have a problem with it, said Anne-Marie Banfield, who unsuccessfully opposed the adoption of the IB program in Bedford, New Hampshire. Right on, Anne-Marie, jackbooted UN mercenaries repel out of black helicopters in the dead of night and stuff all that one-world propaganda into the school desks of unsuspecting students. Why? 
If they take a program like this, they may well lose faith in your precious xenophobic code that other cultures are just failed attempts at being us. The IB is also being offered now in some struggling urban schools where educators say it helps to put low-income students on par with their richer peers, and it does work. I have taught after school in some of those, some of those schools in Los Angeles, and it's amazing what good students, the less entitled, in many cases, Hispanic students are. Both of their parents are working, their cousins are working, their, their, their uncles are working, everybody's working, and they know what it means to be given the opportunity to be educated. So, the good ones are literally on fire. Last year, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation gave this IB program a three-year, $2.4 million grant to prepare low-income and minority students to participate in the IB. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Melinda. Hey, Bill, I'm not fond of your operating system, but your heart is in the right place. Well, this one's from the business section of the Times, Pete, and I thought uh, you, with your economic chops, you might uh, be interested in uh, this guy named Robert Prechter, okay? Uh, plenty of investors are nervous. Some of them were downright bearish. Robert Prechter, a forecaster and social theorist, is in another league entirely. Mr. Prechter is convinced that we have entered a market decline of staggering proportions, perhaps the biggest of the last 300 years. We're talking, we're talking a long time. This tenure. man is bearish. He is like, you know, Smokey the Bearish. Smokey the Bearish. Okay, here, this is a quote. I'm saying winter is coming. Buy a coat. Other people are advising people to stay naked. If I'm wrong, you're not hurt. If they're wrong, you're dead. It's pretty benign advice to opt for safety for a while. <laughs> His advice, individual investors should move competitively out of the market, completely out of the market, and hold cash. Cash equivalents, treasury bills, that kind of thing. For years to come. Years to come. Yep. He, he, he says, for, for a rough parallel, go all the way back to England, the collapse of the South Sea bubble in 1720, a crash that deterred people from buying stocks for a hundred years. This time, he said, if I'm right, it will be such a shock that people will be telling their grandkids many years from now, don't touch stocks. Oh, boy. So what do you think, Pete? What do you think? Economic views here. Well, uh, there's part of me that agrees with Prechter the Bear mm -hmm. because, indeed, I think that we are entering a, a true cataclysmic – the situation is economically cataclysmic, but it's also mentally and spiritually cataclysmic. If we find out, indeed, that speculation and greed and all the things that gets caught up in the so-called free market exchange of nothingness – uh, is really toxic, we may indeed move ourselves seriously away. I don't really think so, though. People love to gamble. What he doesn't understand is no matter how bad the odds, people still go back to gamble. And most stock most stock transactions today, unlike traditional transactions, which were, you know, you bought in a company that was producing and you helped it raise money and yet it yet and it was, it was a long-term investment. These things were all done, what, at a billionth of a second over supercomputers. So, no, we may be going into a 100-year decline, but I don't think anybody's going to stop, you know, Stop and take notice. Okay. Well, all you naked people, you don't have to put on your clothes. Yeah. Keep, you, keep your naked shorts. This is one out of the gray lady about science versus the people and the people versus nature or something like it. 
With oil hitting Barataria Bay, a vast estuary in southeast Louisiana that boasts one of the most productive fisheries in the country, local parish officials hatched a plan in May to save the fragile ecosystem. They would build rock dikes across several major tidal inlets between the bay and the Gulf of Mexico to block and then capture the oil. Governor Bobby Jindal of Louisiana supported the plan, and BP agreed to pay for the project, estimated to cost $30 million. By early June, about 100,000 tons of rock began being loaded onto barges on the Mississippi River for transport to the coast. But over that weekend, the Army Corps of Engineers denied a permit for the project, citing environmental concerns, in particular, the potential for the rock barriers to cause widespread erosion and the breaching of Barataria Bay's existing barrier islands. The ruling echoed the sentiments of independent experts on coastal wetlands who had strongly objected to the plan. Now the rock sits on 75 barges on the Mississippi River with no immediate use like many of the unemployed in the area. As the Gulf oil spill enters its third month, Louisiana officials have grown increasingly enamored of large-scale engineering projects like sand berms and rock walls to keep the oil off their coast. But these projects, which demand the swift restructuring of eastern Louisiana's dynamic and fragile coast, have brought the desires of state and local officials into sharp conflict, not only with a complicated federal bureaucracy charged with protecting wetlands and estuaries, but also with an experienced and highly vocal community of local coastal scientists. In a speech recently in New Orleans, Mr. Jindal said, no one can convince us that rocks in the water are more dangerous than oil. Now that is populist ignorance. Sounds good, right? Nobody can, well, rocks in the water aren't more dangerous than oil. Dream on. That is absolutely ridiculous. The only people who believe that are the bureaucrats in Washington, D.C. who can't see the oil, smell the oil, or touch the oil. Man's a rabble-rouser and he believes in exorcism. Why doesn't he just exercise the oil out of the Gulf? The scientists insist the rock plan was misguided. There was very strong scientific backing for not doing this, said Denise Reed, a wetland specialist and director of the Pontchartrain Institute for Environmental Sciences in New Orleans. This could really devastate our barrier shoreline, our first line of defense. Having raised their voices in objection, these coastal experts now bristle at the accusation that they are out-of-touch academics or pencil-pushing bureaucrats as state and local officials have charged. It's really offensive, I think, and not fair to call the scientific community bureaucrats, said Dr. Ionis Adguru, a professor of marine engineering at the University of New Orleans. We are being demonized. You don't wait weeks and weeks for studies and federal permits in the middle of a war, replied Mr. Jindal in a speech uh, just before the 4th of July. You do what you need to do as quickly as possible to protect your land and your people. Oh, now it's the war on the oil spill. We've gone to war against another problem in our daily lives. Hey, why not gather up all the rocks on the barges and throw them at the scientists? They're the enemy now, Bobby. Well, Pete, I think we ought to start uh, this news item with a little commercial. Uh, You first. Philly cheesesteak in a can? Sure, when it's packed in a pop-top poacher that melts the cheese whip and toasts the bun in seconds right in front of your face. Ready to eat? Wow, I'll say. The hero of brotherly love, only from Deli Can. Try their tongue in a tube, too. 
Yeah, well, it's not a real ad, but you know, it's a real product. No, come uh-huh. on. Dude. No, uh-huh. I know. Make a toy of me is one thing, but, but what? What? Go ahead. Well, sandwiches, of course. Now, here's a very clever guy. Investors in Utah put 145 million bucks in the hands of a money manager named Travis L. Wright. Okay, they're suing this guy. He promised returns of up to 24 percent. On real estate investments. Oh, Travis Wright sounds like the name that you see on an indictment. That's right. It's a perfect indictment name. State of Utah versus versus Travis. Travis. Okay, well, now he he put the money. He didn't invest in real estate. He put the money into Candwich development and other, as they uh, put it, equally untried ideas. Along with the sales of canned sandwiches. Yes, here they are. Candwiches PB&J and BBQ chicken in a can. They were going to do pepperoni pizza pocket and the worst idea in the world, French toast in a can. French toast in a can? And what would the French... Heavy on the 30-weight, Dave. (laughs) What would the French think? Well, they don't think. They just drink, They just drink. Okay. Uh, Okay. Mr. Wright's companies under the banner of Waterford Funding also invested in a company selling rose petals printed with greeting card sediments. Oh, there comes someone I say, I, oh, here's another one, yeah. love, uh, oh, oh, uh, he, mit. Today uh, is the first day of, uh, uh, right, uh, that's a really great idea, and then another one of his good investments was selling watches over the internet. Well, as the New York Times puts it, Utah has long endured a reputation as a place where many people are naive or trusting to the point of losing their shirts. Now, Mr. Wright, he's 47. He lives in Draper, Utah. Uh, he why do re- they all have, t- why are the towns in Utah always named like Donkey Dump and Draper and Wetness? And, they, you know, they, they, they're so concise. Go ahead. Well, his phone was unavailable. He was not, of course, available for comment on this story, but, but the Candwich guy really was the president of Mark One Foods. His name is Mark Kirkland. He's the guy that patented the idea of putting solid food in a beverage container with the slogan, quick and tasty, ready to eat. But the, the financing for the sandwich never materialized. But he says he believes that canned sandwiches will ultimately sell and hopes to get into production later this year. And by the way, the much later, I hope the shelf life of Candwich is really excellent, he pointed out. So it doesn't matter when he goes into business. This peanut butter and jelly Candwich has been around for years. I think it's Egyptian. The sun rises, it reaches midday, and then it's evening, and then it's midnight. Well, in a sense, it's midnight on Radio Friaz uh, today because we're at the end of the show. Uh, David, give us a little tangulations to carry us through the night. Well, this is from the great Lee Poe, who went high in the mountains but failed to find the wise man. Uh-oh, too bad. In the distance, I can hear a dog barking and the sound of fast water. Rain-filled peach blossoms shower me as I walk. Sometimes, deep in the trees, I glimpse a stag standing by a creek at noon. I can't hear a single bell. Overhead, the wild bamboos divide a cloud-blue sky. A flying spring hangs a white plume from a jade-green peak. He's gone. They don't know where. I lean my grief on two or three pines and walk away. 
Boy, I wish I had a place to lean my grief. <laughs> Whoa, you've been listening to Radio Free Oz made entirely possible, grief-free by the Oz team. Peter Bergman, your host. David Osmond sitting over there, our co-host. John Cumming, Phil Fountain, Tom Gedwillow, Chaz Glass, Dave Maloney, Bill McIntyre, and Scott Wilde. Love them all. See you tomorrow. Mm-hmm.